The measure of everyday life is made possible by support from RTI International, an independent, nonprofit institute dedicated to improving the human condition through research, development, and technical services. More information at rti.org. Wherever you are, welcome to our show. It's been clear the last few years that many people appreciate science. Yet it's also clear that many people misunderstand how science works. And some people also don't appreciate scientists and scientific institutions necessarily. That suggests that we need more than researchers conducting science. We also need more people working professionally to translate science and to get input from people about what science should be done. Well, on this episode, we're lucky to have with us two people who have spent much of their careers trying to understand how people understand science. Together, they've written a new book called Strategic Science Communication, a guide to setting the right objectives for more effective public engagement. And it's really a pleasure to have uh, both uh, with us here today. Uh, John Besley is a professor at Michigan State University. Uh, welcome, John. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having us. We're really excited to be able to share this. Great, great. We also have Anthony Dudo, uh, who's a professor at the University of Texas at Austin. Thanks so much for being here, Anthony. We really appreciate it. Great to be here, Brian. Thanks for having us. Yeah. No, well, I, I was excited to talk to you all um, about this. I know you the book's been a long time in coming. This really reflects uh, years of experience each of you have um, in thinking about you know, these issues. And the, the two of you have written really is a, a very timely book, um, you know, given lots of headlines about you know, concerns about relationships between um, you know, the public and, and scientific institutions. Uh, but I, I'm curious, you know, hear about the the lineage and history, uh, you know, of the book. You know, John, did you start working on it before the COVID nineteen pandemic unfolded, uh, or in the midst of it, or, or after it? What uh, tell us a little bit about the origin story of of um, you know the book in that way? Yeah, so we've been giving a talk, uh, either one of us sometimes together about this book. You know, going back tw- probably 2018 tw- and then into 2019, maybe even as early as 2017. Um, and then, so I had sabbatical in 2019, 2020, and so I started it in the fall of 2019, um, sort of writing ch- initial chapters and, and shooting them off to Anthony. And then I was in Singapore for uh, right in 2020, working on chapters and when the COVID uh, pandemic hit. Uh-huh. And uh, and so then we, we were I was writing it in our apartment in Singapore, and, and, and we're going back and forth across across continents. And then yeah, and we've been and we sort of been working on it sort of for the last year and a bit, and it's 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 a long time getting these things out, but we're excited that it's finally finally here. Yeah, but uh, fascinating, I'm sure, um, for to have that experience of having had a lot of ideas, and then to also be informed by um, you know the global experience um, you know as well. And I'm sure that that found its way into the pages. You know, Anthony, I'd, I'm curious from your perspective. Um, you know, that the both of you are uh, renowned uh, science communication scholars um, and uh, have done really important work there. How did the two of you decide to work on a book together? Well, uh, John and I, it was, it was really fascinating to think about how long we've been working together. And it, I mean, it's been, we're approaching 20 years now. And we met, um, I was just starting grad school. John was just finishing grad school when we met. And at that time, uh, we, we were both studying scientists' uh, communication perceptions and behaviors. And it wasn't long before we decided to start uh, doing some work together. And 
uh, you know, we've, we've spent at this point the better part of really 15 years studying this topic. And um, along the way, we've, we've learned a lot about scientists as public communicators. And, you know, we were also really, frankly, quite lucky um, to, to become connected with really a, a rapidly growing network of, of practitioners who are seeking to support and improve science communication. And we learned a lot from these practitioners. And one thing we heard from them quite loud and clear is that they wanted more accessible insights from, from social science to, to help them do their work. And um, it should also be noted that they wanted social scientists to be increasingly aware of the research questions that they had that they were finding in their day-to-day daily working lives. And when you put all those things together, you know, uh, John and I realized, hey, you know, this is a really salient and appropriate time to go ahead and and try to, you know, write a book. Um, and as John mentioned earlier, it, it didn't hurt that he was heading into a sabbatical and had yeah. that time to really dig in to do the deep thinking and the, and, and the deep writing. Yeah, yeah. No, well, it's certainly um, now come to fruition. I so the, the two you've you've opted you know together with your publisher for you know what is potentially a provocative title um, you know really and that you're suggesting that communication about science should be strategic. Now some people might suggest that institutional strategy you know itself you know is potentially a problem. You know it might suggest bias or deceptive framing of, of messages intentionally you know in support of a particular agenda. But I think you're actually advocating for something really different you know, than that though John right I mean what's what's your sense what's your response to the potential critique of um, you know strategy being in the title of a, a book like this absolutely and it, first I think we can agree that being deceptive being dishonest probably wouldn't be a very good strategy for the scientists right. for the scientific <laughs> community um, and we ultimately we one of the things we want one of the goals that scientists ultimately have is often to, to build trust and if you're going to try to build trust it doesn't help to do things that destroy trust. We need scientists to, to, to be honest, caring, competent over the long term. And we need people to see scientists that way. So on one hand, yes, so strategy, so that's what part of it. Another part of this that's important to the origin story is Anthony and I both did our, our um, PhDs in sort of traditional communication departments and then found ourselves working um, in advertising and PR departments. And so we're in, we've been informed. I've been really, it's been 10 years now that I've been at Michigan State. And I didn't think it was going to really change how I think about communication, but that strategy element has become really important to how, how I think we both now think about communication. And then the other part about the final part about being strategic is that we could use the word strategy, but we could also use the word intentionality or being intentional. And I think it's really important for scientists when we communicate, when scientists communicate, when, when, when other science communicators are involved in communication, they're taking time, they're taking their resources. And so we got to be good stewards of those resources. And we're also, the people we're communicating with, we're also taking their time and we're also asking them to, to spend their um, precious moments with us. And so we need to be um, respectful of that time. And so being strategic for us is really about being that intentional, but obviously also being ethical but also, and also being evidence-based. Those are yeah. all things that when we think of strategic, ethical, evidence-based, and intentional. Yeah, no, and, and I think in a lot of ways you can you know, view. I mean, so much of what we do in 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 life, generally in terms of human behavior, is is strategic, and so I think we probably need to you know de-escalate the 
connotation for some people of that of that word. Um, you know, and, and intentionality is a great um, you know, point of emphasis there. I think so. Let, let's talk a little bit about what you recommend with the book. Um, you know, there's a lot in it, of course, um, but you know, just a couple of, of notions here. Uh, you, know, you emphasize the importance of scientists, you know, appearing to be, um, you know, as, as you suggest, you know, competent, uh, warm, honest, you know, willing to listen. You know, why are attributes like that important, John? Yeah, and this is where we're sort of sneaking in some of the, the, the really working in the social scientists, science yeah. research. And so we know from social science, we can think about trust two ways. We can think about trust as a behavior. So that, that's like when we make ourselves vulnerable, that could be taking advice uh, from scientists, um, giving scientists access to resources. Like that means we're being, we're doing a behavior, making ourselves vulnerable. And that's one way to think about trust. The other side of trust or trustworthiness is the perceptions that make it more likely that people are being going to be willing to be vulnerable. And we know from lots of research, it goes by different names in different, different fields, but something about competence, something about integrity or honesty, something about benevolence or warmth. Those things are ultimately what make it more likely that people are willing to trust science. And that becomes really important when you're communicating and communicating strategically because you can't communicate, hey, behave this way. You can't just sort of communicate the behavior. But what we can communicate, what we can talk, what we can share material about is, hey, you know, here's why I think it would be great if you, here's what my motives are. Here's, here's all the work, hard work I'm doing to make sure that my research has integrity. Here's all the hard work we're doing to make sure that when that the the uh, the expertise that's going in to figuring out this advice that we're providing you, and so that's so that's sort of where we're, this sort of book comes from yep. is this idea of like these these we think of these as objectives that we yep. can communicate to achieve our goals, which might be things like behavioral trust. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, so you know, demonstrating all that might might seem like a tall order for some scientists, um, you know, who are engaged, you know, in in some of this work, and I. I'm curious, you know, Anthony, you know, bringing you into the conversation you know, here, you know, how can a researcher begin to um, you know, demonstrate or show such characteristics um, right away you know, without necessarily having you know, years and years of professional training? Are there uh, tips or, or suggestions you would have um, for the short term um, for uh, researchers who might you know, listen to this and, and want to do a better job um, but not be sure how to do it um, in the next you know, couple of days or next week? Sure. I think there's there's probably two ways to, to answer that. I think, you know, one quick thing that a scientist can do is to really consider goodness of fit. And, and what I mean by that is for a scientist, you know, uh, to take a deep breath, pause and reflect on the extent to which the science communication efforts that, that they are making dovetail with their, their own authentic self. And I'll give you a quick example of that. Um, you know, lots of anecdotes and, and talking to scientists over the years. And I, I remember very vividly this one exchange I had with a particular scientist who, who shall remain nameless, who was at a stage of this individual's career where they were really kind of disenchanted and, um, you know, feeling uh, upset by what they perceived to be a really kind of anti-science sentiments, right, in, in the American public. And the way that was playing out in this individual's communication was was vivid, right? It was almost like they were uh, communicating aggressively and sometimes cantankerously, uh, you know, with <laughs> with different publics about science. And uh, you know, I walked away from that conversation, and then the strategist to me was thinking, you know, this is a particular individual who probably shouldn't be communicating science. I found out later that when this individual was put in front a group of of you know uh, students or kids to talk about just more broadly uh, the, the beauty of science 
um, that it was a completely different situation, right? So there was a kind of knowing your goodness of fit, knowing your lane, where you can really express your kind of authentic feelings in a science communication context matters. And I would say that I don't know that all scientists take that moment to actually think through that that goodness of fit. Yeah. Um, and that can be a real advantage. Another thing I'll mention quickly is I'll make an allusion to the to the slow food movement. And this is something that John and I bring up a lot when we talk about strate- what we mean by strategic science communication. You know, I'm sure you, Brian, and, and a lot of the listeners are familiar with many of the books out there, the popular psychology books and social science books that are kind of have this theme based around nudges, right? Like how can you have quick wins exploiting biases and using social psychology to achieve some sort of change in an attitude or behavior? And, you know, they're very interesting and there's nothing wrong with them, but they're, they're part of the picture. And we view really what we're bringing to the table and trying to advocate in this book as kind of the, the other side of the coin, if you will, right? About slowing, that there's a place, a very important place when it comes to science communication for slowing down and taking a deep breath and thinking about um, you know, what you're trying to achieve and how you're going to achieve it over time and recognizing that you know, there's a difference between communication and effective communication. And effective communication takes time, effort, commitment, and people. Yeah. Well, no, and it, it right, it, it needs to be a process of of engagement, you know, over a period of time, right? So if it's going to involve both audience and and the scientists that are you know, presenting ideas, it, it probably can't happen, you know, necessarily immediately. There are first steps that could be taken, but um, you're going to have to listen to what how people are responding and all that too. That's really great, you know, insight, um, in, in so many important ways. It suggests here that. You know, perhaps we ought to be aware of um, instances where um, you know we're or scientists are, are cynical because cynicism you know shows. I mean, I think that's and if you found yourself just in the last second here before the break, you know, Anthony, with a restored sense of almost faith in humanity or kind of thinking about you know that that goodness of fit idea is actually quite a romantic one in a way. Um, is that been inspiring to you to to think about that from the standpoint of people's uh, careers? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, very inspiring. I mean, you can uh, apply to myself as well. (laughs) And and I think, you know, in my, you know, again, humble kind of anecdotal experience, uh, when I have conversations about this goodness of fit issue with with different, you know, science, many scientists who I come across, it it, it seems to resonate, you know, that's not a huge lift. Committing in the long term to being a really good strategic communicator is, in our view, it is a commitment. Yeah. But 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 this goodness of fit issue is something that I think is a bit of a lighter lift and a good entry point into thinking like a strategic communicator. That's great. Yeah. Okay. Well, there's a lot more to discuss about how to best engage people uh, with science and about science. We'll talk more with John Besley and Anthony Adudo uh, when we return. You're listening to The Measure of Everyday Life, produced by WNCU. This is 90.7 WNCU Durham. Welcome back to our show. We're talking today about ways in which people understand science and how scientists might better communicate about their work. So I'm I'm curious here. um, We're talking with uh, John Besley of Michigan State University, Anthony Dudo of the University of Texas at Austin. Um, Both work professionally um, in the realm of what's known as science communication. And, you know, John, Anthony, I'm curious how we might encourage greater cooperation between people uh, who are working 
you know, as scientific researchers and and people who have professional communication experience, people who are um, you know, working every day uh, on, on different communication problems, people who are media professionals, people that are um, you know working here on uh, strategic communication campaigns. You know, John, you know, what can we do to to ensure greater cooperation between those groups? Because uh, I'm not sure that's always happened, you know, historically. Absolutely, yeah. And I mean, the first thing I think on the, fir- on the first side of it is I think it'd be easy as a communication researcher to. And I maybe I, I feel like I might might have been guilty of this at some point. It's like, why aren't the professionals using all this wonderful stuff we've done? Why aren't they using our research? But I, I really, you know, we were just I was just at a conference, and there, people were doing these wonderful, very technical presentations on science communication, but they didn't necessarily ever connect it back to a problem that I, when I'm talking to science communicators, you know, scientists who are communicating, they didn't they, this research that my science communication colleagues, research colleagues, were talking about didn't connect back to that. And so the first thing is I think. As a science communication researcher community, we need to commit to doing more research, applied research, that really helps solve the problems of people who are communicating science. So we absolutely need to do that research. On the other side of it, we also, I think there's some expectation, I think, as we as we get further into this world of science communication, as more people become sort of professional science communicators, I do think there's a sense that we need to, I have a sense that we need to take that seriously, which is why, of course, we, we try to write the book to provide provide this kind of thing. Our sense is that a lot of the books that are out there right now are wonderful at, at teaching some of the tactical skills, how to speak clearly, how to interact with the media, how to, how to tell stories. But they don't necessarily get into the question of like, well, what do you tell stories about? What, right. what should you be clear about? And so um, this is sort of our push into that space. But I do think there's, and there's also this whole opportunity, I think we need to create an infrastructure. A lot of our research now is turning to how do we create an infrastructure it's a lot to ask people to do this, to be strategic on their own as individual scientists or individual communicators. How do we create an infrastructure that helps people be as good as they can be, that, that provides them the support that they need to make uh, strategic decisions? Right. Well, and it, it suggests that you're you're open to the idea that, you know, there ought to be greater you know, two-way conversation or interaction, you know, between you know, different groups such that Scientists might also think about their work as needing to be at least in some way responsive to societal needs, um, you know, and, and and thinking about how there can be listening sort of in, in both both directions there. So I, I appreciate that, you know, as a as an orientation and as an approach. I, I'm also interested. I'm, I'm always interested in the perspective of um, professors, you know, who write books, you know, based on professional experience, and then you know they themselves have additional experiences in the classroom, you know, to draw on opportunities to talk with students about, you know, about their work. And, and sometimes people see you know, a contrast between, you know, what uh, an undergraduate student, for example, might see and, and think is necessary um, and what people outside of university settings think is, is necessary. Um, and, and, and you all are at a, a really interesting intersection point there. You know, Anthony, how have, how have your students in Texas um, reacted to ideas in the book? I'm just, I'm curious about that. So, you know, and when it comes to our, our graduate students, it's connected deeply. In fact, you know, many of them have gone to Texas or gone to Michigan State to, to work with John or to work with me, primarily because the, the work that we're doing on strategic science communication really resonates with them. But in terms of the kind of undergraduate response, your, your question's great because the answer is we're about to find out. <laughs> so, oh, <okay. laughs> you know, the book comes out in September and um, John and I are actually in the process right now of, of building a new course um, that we hope to offer at both of our universities that's that's 
you know, based around this particular book. At UT, it'll be part of a, a minor in science communication um, that we have. And I'm thrilled to be able to have this available for our students. Most of the students who do our minor at UT are, are not uh, communication students. Many of them are coming from our College of Natural Sciences and Engineering and Geosciences, et cetera. And, you know, I look around at UT and, and you know, John could certainly speak to this at, at Michigan State, but it's something that we really need. Um, we actually have a fair number of science communication or, or, or kind of science communication adjacent courses, but many of them, you know, as John mentioned earlier, when it comes to books, many of these courses are focused on kind of more skill-based, right? Um, but this will be the first course that we have down here that's more specifically focused on the conceptual and the strategic aspect of science communication. Yeah. 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 Well, and I, yeah, John, what's the experience been at, at Michigan State? Yeah. I mean, so it, we're sort of still, I mean, I've often sort of, one of the things about this book is yes, it's a science communication book, but a lot of the, the research, the theory that we're drawing from is from across the social sciences. Really, we're drawing from the research on trust and the research on behavior change. But like the thing that I've found, continue to find interesting is that it's really hard to ask people to think strategically. We sort of alluded to this at the top. It's, it's on one hand, people have a sort of like, oh, strategic sounds manipulative, but also there's an element of one of the things about great strategy is it also tells you what gives you a sense of what not to do and, and, and it right. sort of constrains you a little bit. And so we're, we saw, I sometimes feel like a killjoy because we're, we're saying, yeah, you, it's fun. It's great to be creative, but let's be creative in a, in a box. Let's figure out what we want to achieve. And then let's be creative to achieve that thing right. using the evidence base that we have. And so uh, one of the ways we think about this book is as like, yes, tactics, wonderful, become really skilled speaker, become a, help learn how to do production. And this might be the next stage. Like there's a point when, when you sort of get yourself to tactics, that 201 or 401, that higher level sort of thinking of when, when people are ready to start thinking strategically about, and they start worrying, like, am I actually having an effect? That's where I think, once you start asking yourself, but am I doing, am I having any effect? I think that's where, where our book is really going to be helpful. Well, right. But, you know, you're also pointing out that, you know, we often need to ask, you know, we're doing you know, particular um, activities, you know, to what end, you know, why are we doing this? And that question doesn't get asked sometimes, you know, as, as folks, you know, think about, you know, this often happens, I think, professionally. Um, you know, you've got folks with maybe a little bit of curiosity, uh, you know, working in medicine or working in um, you know, one of the sciences in, in different ways. And, and they they're like, well, I'd, I'd like to have a bit more of a, of a megaphone you know, here. I'm going to get involved with social media you know, in some way. But it can be important in those instances also to ask you know, why. You know, like what, what is it you're attempting to accomplish? And I think that's a good starting place, you know, for, for conversations like this. Um, you know, so I, writing a book's always an intellectual adventure. And I know you all have, have done this, um, you know, through the midst of a, a challenging time in the world. Um, I, I'm curious about that process as well, uh, and specifically what, what was most surprising, you know, to each of you um, in, in writing this book. I mean, it draws upon years of insight, but you also then um, you know, needed to codify it. You know, so John, what was what was most surprising for you um, in the process of actually putting the book together? Yeah, I think probably. So there's a couple areas of the book where I felt like I had a lot of like you can't. It's kind of a broad book, so we can't be experts in everything. And so there's a couple areas where I felt like I had a fairly good sense, and then some other ones. But what surprised me as I sort of researched each chapter, I really thought there would be more. Like, oh, here's the evidence that if you use this this tactic, you can achieve. This objective, you know, if you if you do this thing, you're going to be able to foster, you know, a perception of integrity, and that will lead to a more. Here's evidence that that can help 
achieve more behavioral trust. But that evidence is so so scattered and so hard to like yeah. pull all the threads together. And so just that lack of like, there's so much opportunity out there for applied research to show like, here's what this might affect. And here's how this, that that applied research, we just need so much more of it. And, and, I, and uh, we tried to pull what we could find, but a lot of what we're talking about is conceptual stuff. And it's really a plea for more research on that applied side. Yeah, no, I, it sounds it, it's inspiring, but it's also daunting because you know just there's a lot more work to be done. You know, how about for you, Anthony? Was there anything that was you know, striking or surprising? Yeah, for sure. I mean, a bit ironically, I guess it's 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 been kind of that same age old challenge facing science communicators, which is finding a way to navigate kind of that tricky balance between nuance and certainty, right? So you know, as social scientists, we're we're both trained and used to writing with with nuance, right? So we make clear all of all, all of the uncertainties, all the caveats related to you know the data that we're looking at and and that data's possible implications. Um, but when you write a book, especially one that's primarily aimed at helping practitioners, you know, there's an understandable need to write more directly and more accessibly. And that's a challenge, right? To, to, to write in a way that honors the complexities of the data and the social science, but that's also highly accessible and actionable for the practitioners who are out there looking to expand their, their playbook, so to yeah. speak. So that, that balance is, is, it's really gratifying to try to achieve it, but it is, it is difficult to, to get there. And I don't, I don't know how well we have, you know, we, we tried really hard. <laughs> well, the fact that you're aware of it, I think it's a great, you know, giant step you know, forward. And just that notion of embracing uncertainty. And I think it really seems like the, you know, the basis for, um, you know, for, for trust building in a lot of ways is acknowledgement of what, what you don't know and acknowledgement of you know, your effort to try to, um, you know, to gain knowledge and to share that um, when you do know. And, and, you know, similarly, you know, any, any book uh, writing, um, you know, tends to generate questions, you know, as well as answers. So you know, with the last you know, couple of minutes we have here, let, let's talk about what's next in, in, with regards to science communication research, you know, what are some of the most important unanswered questions about the communication of science? I mean, we can start with you, Anthony, uh, quick, and just in the minute or so that we've got. Yep. Sure. Yep. Um, you know, I always talk to my students about how science ultimately is, is actually better at, at, at generating questions than, than it is at answering them. And that definitely applies to our own experience studying this topic and, and you know, going through the process of, of writing the book. If I had to pick or highlight maybe a few one topic I definitely point to, and this is something John mentioned earlier, is infrastructure for science communication. You know, much of the research and training, even um, in the science communication space, focuses largely on understanding and helping individual scientists on their own personal, you know, communication journey. Um, there's nothing wrong with that, but it has meant that, you know, less attention is focused on at least two important things, you know, the, the infrastructures and cultures in which these scientists work um, and how science communication can also be thought of and evolved as, a, as more of a team sport, as more of a, a, a collective endeavor. Um, and, you know, we'd really like to see ideally more research focusing on how studying organizational structures, norms, cultural dynamics can contribute to empowering um, scientist communicators. Um, part of that could be better understanding the interplay between scientists, PIOs, power figures like deans and chairs, and the policies in universities. Um, and 
you know, part of it could also be exploring the kind of the extent to which that interplay is is expanding diversity and inclusion in science communication spaces. We we suspect really in both cases that there's a lot of room for positive change and growth. And some of that change and growth may be uncomfortable, but we're going to argue that it's critical. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, John, just as we wrap up here, um, any any last words on both looking ahead and, and what we ought to be keeping in mind, and what you'd like people to walk away from in your book um, with a, at least a, a top line sense of? Yeah, I mean, I think the core is this idea of if we're really talking about engaging with audiences, it's important. The idea of being strategic is this idea of of as Anthony said, slowing down and thinking about what you want to achieve. Part of that is what do you want to achieve? The other side of that is for others, if you want other people to do behavior, one of the things we find a really hard time talking about is a goal for all science communication should be, what am I going to change in my behavior? Am I doing the right research? Am I doing my research in the right way? And so this idea of, of communication that's two-way, this communication that's that's responsive to society, we're trying to figure out how to talk about that. It's really easy to talk from the social science research to talk about, well, here are some, if you have this goal, here are some objectives. But to yeah. get to that goal of, I want to change my own behavior, my own things. It's an interesting, it's, we're trying to figure out how to study that better. And, and yep. um, it's something that I hope we can, we can continue to study. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, well, we left with, with a lot to, to think about here, but I, I really appreciate all the work that you're both doing. Uh, you know, John, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having us. We really appreciate the chance to share. This yeah, ab- absolutely. You know, and Anthony, we really appreciate you calling in uh, as well. Thanks, Brian. We, it was great to be here. Great. Well, and as always, we want to thank our listeners uh, for joining us and supporting us. This is Brian Southwell. Stay curious out there. The Measure of Everyday Life is made possible by support from RTI International, an independent nonprofit institute dedicated to improving the human condition through research, development, and technical services. More information at rti.org.